And I'm really interested in thinking about how our engagements with Amazon even change how we what it means to be a consumer so you know like we like being a consumer was about being a choosing subject like you run around to different companies and you make lots of choices and you're always comparing and I think about how Amazon encourages us to be a served self um, and that I think is an impediment to a competitive you know digital marketplace and also if this subjectivity this way of thinking of ourselves of the served self takes root it's not great you know for this right to repair movement either like we we need to maybe you know reclaim like there, yeah yes there's limits to what you know consumer choice can do but also we don't want to lose it hey there everybody welcome back to what the fix podcast this is our sixth episode of what the fix where we talk about the latest news and happenings in the fight for the right to repair and interview some of the leading thinkers newsmakers uh in the right to repair movement and uh i'm here i'm your co-host paul roberts and i'm here with jack monahan co-editor of fight to repair Hey, welcome back, Jack. Yeah, good to be here. I feel like there's a lot of interesting news this week, and I think that this week's interview with Emily West about Amazon is going to be very interesting for people and just like accessible to people outside Right to Repair. So excited for this week. Yeah, we did have a busy week. So um, as we uh, do in these episodes, um, Jack and I are going to kind of swing through some of the big Right to Repair news of the week and um, just kind of highlight some stories that I think you should be aware of and following. And um, then we're going to swing into a really good interview that uh, Jack did with Emily. So um, to start off, I'll start off, if you don't mind. Um, uh, my top story of the week is, of course, the DEF CON hacking conference that happened uh, last weekend in Las Vegas. This is uh, DEF CON's one of the big hacking shows uh, of the year. And this year we had some really interesting right to repair related content at DEF CON, including a panel that I hosted uh, on the right to repair and cybersecurity topic, uh, as well as a hack of a John Deere tractor um, by a researcher by the name of Sick Codes, in which he got uh, the um, he got the uh, John a he got the Doom first person shooter video game, the like classic Doom, uh, to run on a John Deere like 4000 series touchscreen monitor, which are the monitors that basically control the the heavy equipment, like the tractors and harvesters and stuff like that. Um, so it was a great show. Um, you know, DEF CON's like 15 or 20,000 hackers, tinkerers, breakers, lock pickers. You know, it's, it's, it's the true kind of culture and society of hacking um, versus like the business of hacking, information security industry. Um, and our panel went really well, uh, with me on the panel, I had Lewis Rossman, uh, of Rossman Repair Group, uh, very well-known YouTuber who talks a lot about right to repair, Kyle Weens of iFixit, um, Corinne McSherry, who's an attorney with the Electronic Frontier Foundation, and, uh, Joe Grand, who is a renowned hacker, tinkerer, had a show on Discovery Channel, I think. Um, and has made a bunch of the DEF CON badges over the years. Um, his, his handle is Kingpin. Um, and just a great guy to talk to about, you know, the value, inherent value of tinkering with stuff, taking it apart, breaking it, hacking it, figuring out how it works. Um, and so we went through kind of the state of the right to repair uh, struggle and um, some of the, you know, challenges that uh, we face from industry opponents and why, you know, kind of what white repair is and why it's important. Um, had a really good reception uh, from the audience, uh, a lot of really good questions. Um, and I think, you know, surprisingly, like, even because for us, because we talk about right to repair like 24 seven, but even out there in the technical community for people who are very, you know, technically adept, who are really you know, engage with these issues, they might not know a lot about right to repair, like what it means or what's going on. So that's really interesting because I feel like I would expect people to at least be clued in to like electronics right to repair at the very least. Like what questions were people asking that like were more like on the basic side? 
I mean, people, um, you know, people really just wanted to understand like what these right to repair laws did. There were some questions like one guy asked, like, well, what about, you know, there's, you know, what if we have, uh, I'm, I work at a company, then we have to make, uh, you know, hardware that is FIPS compliant. FIPS is like a federal information security uh, standard for, you know, um, uh, networking gear and stuff like that. Um, and, you know, what, you know, how would right to repair affect that? So some, some of them were just very practical questions like that, um, usually from people who kind of had a had some experience in the industry. And basically what we said is, listen, you know, right to repair is, has, says nothing about the design of a product. It's really those right to repair laws are silent about how you design your product. Um, all they say is, you know, if you've got an authorized service network that you're giving software tools, information, parts to, um, and uh, then you need to make those available to the owners and to independent as well. So that's, that's all it is. If you're great, if it's FIPS compliant hardware, it's really about, do you have an authorized service network? And if you do, that's when right to repair kicks in. Um, you know, the other big news out of the show was this hack of the John Deere tractors. It got huge news pickup um, everywhere, like US, all over Europe, um, all of the gaming world, you know, uh, because the tie-in with the Doom uh, video game running on these monitors, that that activated a whole, the whole gamer uh, part of the network, of the internet. And... Um, Really important story from the right to repair standpoint, I think just because it speaks to, you know, I think efforts to really liberate some of this uh, very locked down, restricted hardware like deer uh, equipment um, from the iron grip of the manufacturer. And one way to do that is to jailbreak it, uh, to allow third party software to run on this hardware. We've seen that with, you know, Apple iPhones, for example, you know jailbreaking them so you can, um, you know, use applications from a third-party app store, not just the Apple app store. Um, that's a much bigger project. Um, I think a lot of the coverage of the of the sick codes hack was kind of, gosh, look at this. Uh, it's doom on a, on a John Deere monitor. Um, but there are some really big issues at stake and, and um, cybersecurity issues as well. I think sick codes made it really clear, like, hey, I found a bunch of security flaws in the course of doing this, and, and that's an issue as well. So... Uh, overall, in all, uh, a good show. It's it's also funny because a lot of like the auto right to repair stuff, and I, I guess maybe even in agriculture, I'm not necessarily sure, but like all the cybersecurity arguments against repair from these industries are just very, very like they just have so many holes in them because we're seeing that like even with you know a closed system where companies are in control of all the software, it's not making things necessarily more secure. Indeed. Yeah. I mean, that is, that is for sure. And, um, you know, uh, it's just, it's really part of, it's just a job of having to educate the user community and, and, um, and the manufacturing community as well about this. And so that, I think DEF CON is, DEF CON is a really big stage and I think it, it, that worked well. On to you, Jack, what's your, what's your first story of the week? Well, this makes me think about a piece that I read in uh, McGill University's like International Review uh, Journal. And what it was talking about was it's a piece by uh, Itai Epstein. And he wrote basically just like an overview of right to repair. But he had a piece um, like within the broader um, like piece about how we communicate and how fractured the right to repair movement is and how people kind of conceptualize it in very fragmented industries. So like there's the auto right to repair, there's consumer right to repair. And then there's kind of like these like kind of like adjacent issues of like circular economy. And I guess like even like jailbreaking and stuff like that. So I think what's interesting to me is like how the movement is conceptualized by everyday people, right? So you're talking to people at DEF CON that aren't necessarily clued into what the right to repair is. Um, and I am very interested in how we communicate on what the right to repair is and how in the way that we frame it to people, that's going to change how they view it. Um, there's like a really, one of my favorite books is that like really changed how I saw the world was it's a book by Diva Woodley. And she basically talks about how social movements communicate and how changing just like the way you frame an argument has a totally different impact on how people receive it. So I feel like right now we're in a very fragmented space. What's the title of that book, Jack? The title is, um, I think it's, I think it's the politics of common sense. Um, I'll link it in, in the um, show notes. 
this bears on the legislation too, because what what I often hear just as part of these conversations with legislators is like, you know, why don't we, you know, the, these bills, you know, they you're you're really you know kicking a hornet's nest with all of these industries and all of their lobbyists, and if you know we write this broad bill, you know, that touches on medical devices and agricultural equipment and home appliances, and like you know the lobbyists descend on us and the bill dies, you know, why can't we just make it? You know, we'll just do a bill for cell phones, you know, and then maybe we'll do a bill for, you know, you know, lawn equipment, you know, and it's just like, well, because this is a broad consumer right, right? Just like we don't have a separate warranty bill for each you know category of products, like it's not going to work that way because just the, the right to repair is really something that stretches across different product categories. And like it's not going to be feasible to write 300 different versions of this bill to each apply to a separate little you know product category. Um, there are real problems with that. And but that's it's the same thing. Like, you know, we need to start talking about this as just a broad right, almost like the freedom of speech or, you know, uh, uh, freedom of association or right to privacy, you know, that that stretches across different technologies and use cases. And so. Do you think that this is a situation much like the one that we talked to Kyle Weens about when it comes to like consumer electronics? So if you haven't seen that uh, episode, it's episode two, definitely check it out if you haven't listened to it. But something that Kyle mentions is like, companies are just dragging their feet. I think they know that consumer repair, like electronics repair is coming, but they're doing everything they can to kind of like slow things down to like say, make more money, save themselves some time to get ready for it. But do you see that this is like parallel to that, where we think auto repair is an inevitability and these companies are trying to like slow things down? Or you think that they're just trying to like stop it entirely? I mean, I think Kyle's right. And he obviously has a has a view on this because he works, you know, closely with companies like Google and Samsung. And, you know, um, so I, I think I think his I think his read on it is right. Um I'm kind of more cynical by nature and I I sort of I would be reluctant to say something as bold as right to repair is inevitable and they're just trying to slow it down. I think companies are always kind of sticking their finger in the wind to see where public sentiment is going, but they're also always looking to leverage their wealth and access to lawmakers and if they think that they can find a way to um basically outlaw um repair for whatever reason, um you know, whether it's, uh, you know, phony cybersecurity arguments or phony intellectual property arguments, um, then they're going to try and do that. So I, I would not assume like, well, the wind's at our back and and it's inevitable that eventually we just get the right to repair all this stuff. No, I don't think that's true at all. I think, you know, particularly change of change of, uh, let, you know, change of administration, change of leadership in Washington, D.C. that's more amenable to, you know, hearing the point of view of, you know, multi-billion dollar companies and industry associations, you know, you could see uh, laws going the exact opposite way um, that basically kind of lock in this um, somewhat dystopian, um, you know, monopoly controlled uh, world and we're all just kind of passive participants in it. So uh, I think we got to keep fighting. I don't at all. I don't for one second think that, you know, victory is inevitable and we just have to kind of wait until it happens. Um, I don't think Kyle thinks that either. Um, and, and I think that, you know, I, I think that with consumer electronics, you know, uh, you, you have seen what used to be very vocal and active uh, adversaries, opponents of right to repair kind of ease off and and obviously with iFixit introduce some pro repair programs although limited um and even more importantly i think kind of ease off on the lobbying and the pushback um at the state level um, at least on repair at least on repair um but no yeah i'm i'm kind of more cynical on it yeah yeah no i was yeah i think the cons i think the consumer electronics I think the consumer electronics like fight is a little bit more mature, I guess, than the automotive side, which I think I totally agree that, you know, the fight yeah. needs to keep happening. And all of this, like, you know, local power building is definitely happening, like specifically yeah. for auto in New England. Um, obviously. Yeah. But yeah, it's just it's interesting to see those two parallel because there are some well, similarities. We, I think we need to make it an issue in, in, in races, too. And one thing you and I might do is take a look, you know, we're coming up on a midterm you know, election here. You know, what are the positions of leading car candidates in regard to repair? It's it's a non-issue on the campaign trail by and large, but it shouldn't be. Um, so yeah. Anyway, um, 
Second story, you, yes. So there's a lot of stuff coming out of Europe around repair. Europe's obviously like a leader in the space because they've passed their, you know, European Green Deal. And they have this circular economy action plan that we've been talking about for a while now. And something that two things that came out of that was one, there was a eco design directive that they're kind of like they're expanding a previous law from, I think, 2009. And they're kind of getting it to the point that they are going to now be able to create like higher restrictions around new products that are designed things around, you know, like how durable it is, how repairable it is as well as keep companies from like throwing out extra stock and like having to uh, like show the numbers on if they do throw out stuff like that. So there's like new restrictions and, you know, kind of raising the floor of what is allowable when it comes to designing products to make sure that we have less e-waste, you know, less plastic waste, things like that. So that's kind of the eco design directive. Um, There's a full report that also came out that was uh, essentially on right to repair and how to create right to repair specifically for electronics that came out of the European Commission. So they had researchers compile a report that basically went through, you know, why do we need electronics right to repair because of, you know, like, you know, you want to lower costs for consumers, but also e-waste as well as, you know, carbon emissions, things like that. So they talk about the problems as well as kind of the barriers to getting that to happen. You know, lobbying is probably one of the most chief ones. They have like a lot of technical solutions for how we can implement consumer right to repair by getting people more access to tools, by creating, you know, better designed products, things like that. But overall, I think they're getting at like right to repair is a key component of their circular economy plan. Like it's like a main pillar and there's no getting around that. And it's so funny. I mean, again, we are in the midst of a, you know, midterm election cycle here. So, you know, certain issues are, are taking, you know, taking prominence, obviously, you know, reproductive rights uh, top among them here in the United States. Um, you know, stuff like, like, I don't hear any major politician uttering the phrase circular economy in the United States. I mean, I'm trying, I mean, I'm sure, Liz, you know, I'm sure like some of the more progressive politicians do, but it is just not something that you hear, you know, mainstream national politicians in the U.S. talking about in any way, shape or form. And I know we just passed a big, you know, environmental bill, like definitely there's, there's progress on those, but this whole notion of moving away from a throwaway culture here in the United States versus in the EU, it seems like we're just like years behind them on that. Yeah. And what's from the policy standpoint, you know, what's worse is, is that like, you know, it's almost guaranteed that the Democrats lose the house in the fall. So that, you know, splits government between whether or not the, you know, the, I guess the Democrats are more repair friendly. Um, I'm not. It's hard to say. I mean, it it really is hard to say. Like, and even more broadly, I mean, okay, repair, maybe it's kind of a nerdy niche issue, but like just this whole idea of like, you know, we need to move towards a more sustainable economy, one that isn't just predicated on throwaway technology and throwaway stuff and, you know, single use plastic clamshell containers that sit in a landfill for 2000 years after being used for five minutes. And, you know, I mean, just this whole, I mean, it's broader than repair. I mean, repair is a big part of it, but like, I just, I just don't hear it. I don't, I really don't hear anyone really talking in those terms. And I mean, yeah, on the Republican versus down, I mean, I, I, I think repair is actually a bipartisan issue. And I think you saw that in New York state, right. Where it passed with strong bipartisan support in both the Senate and the assembly. Um, but it's also true that, you know, the only two states, only three states that have passed right to repair legislation, Colorado, Massachusetts, New York, are all pretty solidly blue states. Um, so it seems to have legs in blue states that it doesn't in red. Um, and, um, yeah, I mean, um, I'm not, I'm not quite as pessimistic about our chance about the, you know, chances in November for, for, you know, progressive lawmakers to, um, to retain power, but, um, but I think you're right. I mean, I, you know, it took us, it took us 50 or 60 years to get that environmental bill done. And, you know, I, I I'm with you. I don't know if we're going to see a, a, a quick follow up to expand it, um, but I'm not totally willing to count it out. You know, things I change. Seems... I appreciate your hope. <laughs> <laughs> but I would like to I would I don't know what it's going to take. Um, I mean, just what strikes me about it is how different the conversation is on on both sides of the pond, you know, that in. It's so that in the EU, 
this whole notion of you know, needing to shift the economy to one that's more sustainable, circular, whatever you want to call it, um, is pretty well, is, you know, that, that conversation is pretty well advanced at this point. Yeah. Um, and here it's like, it's, I mean, I don't think anyone talks about it. It's like, it's totally off the, off the radar. Oh, so, my God. yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Okay. On to our, uh, on to our guest. Um, yeah, yeah. Tell definitely. us who we're, who we're talking to this week on uh, what the Yeah. Case. So we're talking to uh, Dr. Emily West. She's kind of like a media theorist that wrote a book about Amazon. And the, the title of the book is By Now, How Amazon Branded Convenience. And she talks just generally about how ubiquitous and like just broad strokes, like Amazon is everywhere. And we just totally forgot about how it's everywhere. And not only is the, the packages... Amazon Web Services own the most amount of servers. Like they're they're in the software space, they're in the internet space. They are everywhere, and the amount of you know nudging that they're able to do to consumers is mind-boggling. And so the way that we conceptualize Amazon and we think about Amazon, I think, was a really good way to to think about how companies are able to impact our lives, even if you know it is ultimately our choice to buy something or not. There are a limited range of choices. And when you're in a monopolistic environment, you have an even narrower set of choices. And so when monopolies are able to capture that large like piece of the market, you're you're screwed in a lot of ways, depending on, you know, what you want to do. And repair, I think, is like a perfect example of that, which was what we talk about. And this is such a really timely interview and topic because of course, what happened in the last two weeks? Amazon bought iRobot, the maker of the Roomba robot vacuum cleaner. I've got one here. Um, I'll be at an older one. Um, but this, but part of the blowback from that, first of all, okay, Amazon gobbling up another major, you know, uh, product maker. Um, but there was also a lot of concern about the access that would give Amazon to the very intimate details of your home. Um, you know, what the layout of your home is, how big it is, maybe even what's in it. Um, and, um, people are really freaked out about that. Yeah. Bezos having a map to your house is not something. <laughs> but again, you're like, you're limited in choices, right? So it's like the yes. things that you buy, you know, it's like, if you want one of those, chances are, you're probably going to get like yeah. the average model of it right. and that's going to end up being owned by a company. And so it's yeah. like, it's we slowly... noticed you don't have a sideboard. Would you like a sideboard? Why, why am I suddenly getting ads for sideboards all over the place? You know what I mean? It's just, yes. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so uh, she she talks she talks a lot about that and just like how like how how Amazon brands itself and how we think about Amazon has slowly kind of like degraded our ability to like push out Amazon out of our personal lives because it's just it's unending. It's always coming at you from a thousand angles whether it's like your smart speaker or the things that you buy or you know like your music listening habits, they're everywhere. And so being able to understand how they operate in a market I think has a ton of analogs and we talk a little bit about it of you know how companies are able to control things like repair, things like what you're able to do with the products that you buy, whether it's your car or your phone. And so we we kind of dance around some of the repair issues, but I do think I want to put that in people's heads, you know, before they listen to this interview. Great, that sounds awesome. So without further ado, let's hear from Dr. Emily West. All right, Emily West. Uh, thank you for joining us on What the Fix, here to talk about your book, Buy Now, uh, about the everything about Amazon. And we wanted to bring you in today because we're seeing a lot of parallels between what we're seeing in Right to Repair and, you know, just general market domination, um, you know, monopoly power, all that stuff that we're seeing from companies, tech companies uh, like, like, um, yeah, like Google and Apple and, you know, John Deere in the agricultural space. So we wanted to bring you into the studio to talk generally just about uh, what you're seeing in, you know, Amazon, given that it touches just about every market in the U.S. So something that I think we cover a lot is, you know, the convenience or the friction that's created by companies when they want to, you know, stop you from repairing something. So, for example, you know, Apple makes it very difficult for you to crack open your iPhone. You can't have spare parts, things like that. And that's generally what, you know, right to repair bills are doing is they're trying to create accessibility but on another level, Amazon is kind of creating convenience anywhere and everywhere. And so, you know, whether it's packages or where you, you know, stream videos online or where you get your groceries, it's convenient and they're trying to make it as convenient as possible. Given that that kind of seems like just naturally like a good thing for things to be convenient 
something you touch on in the book is kind of the costs of this convenience. And even though something in the short term might seem like a great idea, there are actually long-term costs for consumers when it comes to companies kind of using their outsourced market power to gain profits, but in in the same way hurt people and consumers. So can you talk just a little bit about like what those costs of convenience are? Thanks for having me. Um... Yeah, the subtitle of my book, it says, Buy Now, How Amazon Branded Convenience and Normalized Monopoly. And I think there there is this connection that you rightly point out between um, things being um, so convenient and then that um, when consumers experience that, that lending itself to more market dominance. And so um, Amazon you know, has been customer obsession, you know, is, is its leading market principle and has been, I think, since day one. And so it's been always looking to re remove what are the, called those pain points, you know, for the user. Um, and, you know, in the early days, that was things like you could have your payment information and your mailing address stored by Amazon, you know, and then they, a few years later, they rolled out, well, if you have that, you can buy some products with one click, um, which they actually patented. Um, and now, you know, as we get into the, you know, the 21st century, then, you know, you have Prime, which, you know, is an, a big incentive if you become a Prime member to, you know, buy from Amazon, look on Amazon first, because your shipping will be included, you know, no matter what you buy. And there's this sort of, you know, quick delivery promise. So there's, you know, we could talk you know, all day about all the ways that Amazon um, focuses on convenience. But I think it's good to reflect on the ways in which convenience sometimes um, goes against or discourages choice, you know, and I know that's a big focus in right to repair, right, is that, um, you know, this is going to be limiting your choice about what you do with the device that you supposedly bought, and you have this idea that you own it now, um, and yet that when you try and do things with it, you find that actually you're sort of in this ongoing service relationship with the company. Um, so, you know, being able to buy something with one click is, is you know, it, it essentially is kind of, you know, trying to speed up that moment of purchase and discouraging you, discourage you from reflecting on, do I want to buy it here? Should I look at some others first? Because it's so easy. Um, and similarly, the way in which so many things are bundled with Prime kind of makes Amazon this now, you know, the first place that people look up products, you know, like it's, you think of Google as the primary search engine? Well, not in products. It's Amazon. Amazon is the dominant um, search engine. And so, um, you know, we have to really, you know, grapple, I think, with Amazon's long-termism. Like they, it's their, not only their philosophy, and I think this is true across a lot of the tech companies, um, but it's their ability as a tech company that can attract so much investment you know, like almost in, independent of profits to some extent at certain times. And that allows them to, you know, even lose money on things um, or just not make money on certain things in order to um, build this long-term relationship with people, you know, so that it becomes, Amazon's kind of like this default, you know, under the radar, you know, that's just where you go. You depend on it for a ton of things. You don't think about it a lot. And that is something that Amazon has really cultivated. And that's kind of what I talk about in my book. Like, what, what have the strategies been, been that they've used to cultivate this fading into the work woodwork? We're just part of the infrastructure of how stuff gets done in your life. Um, and that, you know, has very successfully led it to, you know, it's not you know, it's, it's dominant in many important markets, right? Like, is it a monopoly that ends up being this debate because like what businesses is Amazon in? It actually is in a ton of different businesses and the extent of its market capture varies across those. But I think the fact that it does operate across those various complementary businesses just makes this market dominance kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy at this point. Yeah. And you use the idea of what you call distribution fetishism. Obviously, you didn't coin the term, but can you talk a little bit about why that's important to Amazon? Yeah. So um, 
this term of distribution fetishism, I I offer as obvious steal, right, or borrowing of Karl Marx's commodity fetishism, where he focuses on, you know, when you see a, a product being sold in a market, you think its price just is like inherent to its objectness, to what it is. And, you know, the fetishism is us forgetting and not realizing that the the price is really its source is labor value and which and that labor value is just a function of the the way we've socially divided labor in a capitalist system so you know that's a long standing idea about commodities but amazon like it's it's a delivery it's a brand that delivers right i mean it is now all you know it's also now um a manufacturer of its own products so you know vis-a-vis -vis right to repair there's you know, a lot of people have Amazon electronics devices, etc. It's now a publisher of books, you know, but, you know, what it's been doing since early on is, is delivering stuff. And I think it's very much promoted us not thinking about um, those processes of distribution, just thinking about that moment of arrival, right? And if you think about the communications that you get from Amazon about your product deliveries, it's like, oh, it's shipped. So you know it's on its way, then you don't hear much until it's like 10 stops away. And then they'll start sending you pictures and like building up your anticipation and excitement for when this thing arrives on your doorstep and you get to touch the box. So I think a lot um, in the book about, um, you know, the the way Amazon brings our attention to our own, you know, these tactile moments, these moments in time where we kind of interact with and, and get this payoff of, yes, we got our stuff, we got it quickly. Um, and, you know, for, a, you know, they've, they've historically really discouraged us knowing about or thinking a lot about the absolutely unbelievable distribution infrastructure and labor effort and, ex, you know, you know, the productivity, um, protocols and, you know, things and devices even that they use to extract as much um, productivity from the workers, both within the warehouses, you know, delivering the goods in vans, or even the white collar workers, you know, we've really been discouraged from um, thinking about that. Um, that shifted a little bit with the pandemic, because then people were like, wait a minute, who's working in the warehouses? Aren't they essential workers? Are they okay? Um, and so I think there's been, in the last few years, some aggressive PR around saying, no, it's a good job. You know, these our, our workers are happy. Um, but for the most part, it's like, no, it's about the one-on-one -on -one relationship with, you have with a company that's taking care of you, you know? Um, and that's another thing that I think about in the book is that, um, you know, Amazon's marketing is like not super flashy or like over, you know, um, necessarily super emotional like Disney marketing or Nike marketing or Dove marketing um, some of those you know Coca-Cola some of those big iconic brands but it builds up a very powerful relationship with with users um, and consumers through all these touch points and through the fact that we are interacting with this brand sometimes like many times a day sometimes for extended periods if you're like streaming media or talking to Alexa and that, I think, is something we've kind of underestimated. Um, you know, you, we, when I mentioned, like, oh, Amazon's, like, one of the most trusted, one of the most loved brands in America, yeah. people are surprised. They're like, what? And it's like, no, it's very consistent across all these different types of marketing studies and surveys. Because, um, it's again, it's under the radar. It's like, oh, it's just part of what makes things happen. Um, and But this stance of, like, we'll take care of it. We'll take care of you. We'll make it easy for you, I think, really aligns with, like, oh, and if your stuff breaks, you know, just send it back to us. Or we'll just tell you where to send it, you know? Yeah, we'll be in charge of that. Don't you worry. Don't you worry your pretty little heads about it. And this makes me think of, you know, the word that you that keeps coming up in the book is ubiquitous. And so Amazon, you are, are saying rightly is it's kind of it's so present that you don't even notice it. And that's kind of the point, right, is that they don't want you to notice that specifically what you're talking about with, you know, the workers and just generally like the infrastructure of how 
the package gets to your door, like they don't want you to think about all of that, all those steps. They just want you to have like that warm, fuzzy feeling inside, you know, when you're, when you're opening that box and you're getting it, which then, you know, breeds more consumption, breeds you like being more attached to the brand, which is pretty similar to like, for example, like an Apple, when you go in to like, you know, fix your phone or like get a new phone, they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Stay here in like the beautiful, like Apple store and we'll go in the back and we'll figure everything out and then we'll come back in. And that does a lot of like analogs to repair because it kind of kind of mystifies the process. And so with that, I'm thinking about what you talk about with, you know, ecosystems and the term walled garden is something that comes up. And I would think just about every episode that we talk about technology. And so it's a theme that's present in your book. And it is a lot of it has to do with like power imbalances between customers because companies like Amazon dominate markets. Um, but like, you know, situations like Apple or John Deere, we're seeing, you know, anti-repair restrictions pop up, which makes people, you know, less willing to buy into these brands. But at the same time, you're so locked in. Um, and so Amazon, I think, is like the quintessential example of this, of like just being locked in because it's not just the packages. It's like, do you have Amazon video? Do you like browse websites that are hosted on Amazon web services? Do you have like, you know, some people have ring doorbells, like stuff that you don't even realize is owned by Amazon is. Um, so can you talk like a little bit just about ubiquitousness and how just how invisible Amazon is actually impacts, you know, how we're unable to really subvert a lot of this market power? Yeah, the... The subtitle of the book that the press rejected was uh, "Branding Ubiquity." You know, um, that like sort of. So that I'm glad you picked up on that because it definitely was an idea uh, when I was writing the book um, that Amazon has pretty successfully branded its own ubiquity, and you know, to, and it, it, on a couple different levels that you indicate. Like one is just that we're not always many you know, end users are unaware of the full extent of all what Amazon owns. Like they might not realize Amazon is the leading cloud services, you know, sub, you know, provider and that like a huge percentage of the things that you use online are supported by Amazon web services. They might not know that it Amazon owns Twitch, it owns Ring, it just bought Roomba, it bought IMDB. No. Yes, it just bought <laughs> Roomba. Roomba. So it's like, you know, it's smart, it's smart home ambitions are like not a secret. Um, uh, it bought um, IMDb, uh, you know, a long time ago. Um, it um, the uh, you know, even though book reviews are huge on Amazon itself, it also acquired Goodreads, which is sort of the another leading um, book reviewing sort of social site. So it has you know so much. There's that level, but I think the other level of branding ubiquity is just like its branding is kind of so simple. It's like colors and like the Amazon smile and has a kind of utilitarianness to it. Um, I end up I compare it to. Um, UPS actually in the book where, you know, like UPS similarly was like, we're just going to be like, have these Pullman Brown trucks, you know, we don't want to like be flashy or like interfere with the things that we're delivering. Um, so Amazon is similarly like streamlined. It's, it, it, it can't be like, you know, I think too representationally rich it, because that would like maybe appeal to a certain market segment. It doesn't want a certain market segment. It wants to be the everything brand for everyone. Um, so, um, you know, I think that th that's one of the things I really tried to put my finger on is like, how has Amazon achieved this branding ubiquity? Um, but the other thing you brought up was this sort of walled garden idea. Um, and I think that that's, um, you know, such an important idea and, you know, kind of like the classic walled gardens are like thinking back to, you know, the nineties, like with like AOL and like, oh, you know, you're going to have a subscription and AOL is going to tell you what things on the web you can look at. Um, so there might be, there are some things like that, you know, within Amazon's, um, you know, array of products and services. So, um, for example, like, um, I think, you know, the Echo Smart Speakers, they support just like the Alexa voice assistant, you know, so that's a kind of walled garden there. But I also like play with the idea of a pleasure garden. Um, and so this is the idea of like, it's, um, you don't need a key to get in and out, but it is kind of an organized space that is full of amusements and services and diversions that just basically make you not want to leave. 
Um, and so that's what I, th I think of the, the prime membership um, being like. And I, I, one of the things I point out in the book is that in its public facing communications, Amazon will likes to use, and this is not just Amazon, it's a lot of tech companies. It uses a lot of naturalistic metaphors, you know, not just like the cloud and streaming, but ecosystem, like, you know, be a prime member and access our ecosystem of, of content and, you know, complementary products and services, and it's a bundle and, um, but internally, you know, ecosystem is great. It's like, it's, it's big, it's, it's, um, supporting like thriving and like, um, you know, uh, it's harmonious. Um, it's permanent, you know, it's like never going to go away. Um, but what they talk, how they talk about prime, the prime membership to each other, like internally or like in the business community when they're trying to like raise money is as a moat. Right. Okay. So the prime membership like keeps your best customers from leaving. It's not that they can't leave. It's just that, oh, you know, why sign up for Apple music when there's Amazon music? And like, at least part of that is already part of my prime membership. Um, so I think, you know, it's, it's, you know, leveraging the sort of psychology of the root of least resistance that sort of, you know, years now and like many, many touch points that contribute to a sense of like trust and feeling cared for by the brand um, that, um, you know, maybe in some specific instances that you might be prevented from like making a choice to use a different company or service. But a lot of the time you're just kind of discouraged from doing so and you people, it doesn't occur to people or they can't be bothered or they don't want to like put their, inf you know, credit card information or shipping information into another site that they've never used before. They'd, they'd rather go with this trusted entity. Yeah. It, al it almost seems like, and this is kind of like a rising movement right now of like basically divesting from Amazon Prime and like not using Amazon, which I know you mentioned, but it is just so interesting to think about how intentional you have to be to step out of that pleasure garden because you, first of all, you need to have the, you know, opinion that you shouldn't be using Amazon in the first place. And then you have to then try and figure out how to like de-Amazon your life, which you talk about, which is like incredibly difficult because they're in just like just about every space. Yeah, I feel sort of conflicted about this because I've, you know, read accounts of people who tried to, as you say, de-Amazon their life, who, you know, sort of say, like, it takes so much intention and energy or, like, concluded that they couldn't, you know, like, they would order something from another site and realize it had been delivered by, you know, Amazon Logistics or, you know, um, you know, or realize, like, oh, certain things that we, like, sort of need to look at online are supported by Amazon Web Services. Um, so... You know, on the other hand, of course, if you cancel your Prime membership, you know, I, I I wouldn't say that's nothing because, you know, Amazon really like trumpets, you know, their Prime memberships as evidence of, you know, how well they're doing as a company. Um, I, you know, the la the most recent stat I think was like an Amazon Prime member will spend like $1,400 a year with Amazon compared to a non-Prime member might spend like 600 or 800 or something. So it's a huge, huge difference. Um, so, you know, it doesn't, you know, it, it, it's not inconsequential. On the other hand, I don't know if I really believe that like individuals um, boycotting Amazon is the best route to um, reigning in its disproportionate market power. Um, you know, when I just think about um, how global Amazon is as a company now, it's really focusing on international markets right now because there's more scope for growth there. When I think about, you know, the, the, how diversified it is across so many businesses, how profitable, say, Amazon Web Services is, which is like a business-to-business, -business, you know, thing less to do with us as end users. Um, you know, and, and also just how individualized we, we are, I think, as Amazon customers. Like, we, we don't really meet anywhere and see each other as Amazon customers in public. Um, we, ought, we all have actually quite different relationships with Amazon. You know, some people are, like, you know, chatting with Alexa all day. You know, other people use Amazon to buy things for their business. You know, I mean, uh, some people, like, only buy certain products and subscribe and save. You know, it's such a diverse array of relationships. Um, so I, I tend to think, you know... A consumer movement should really be like collective in some way, like it needs to be organized. We need to like confront the costs of convenience as Amazon customers together. Um, and, and that, you know, I, 
just as right to repair is, you know, looking to government regulation and law, you know, I think, I think that's really the ultimate um, way to right size, you know, um, and, you know, Amazon's size, power, the ways it uses its power, um, you know, I mean, you know, and, and the fact is, like, it's our consumer pleasure and delight is what Amazon, like, talks about over and over when they're called into Congress. You know, our customers are so happy. We just want to make things cheaper for them or, you know, like, you know, um, you know, we're obsessed with our customers, blah, blah, blah. So if they're using us as the excuse to, you know, maybe not be fully truthful or to, like, drive small, you know, competitors out of business or um, ultimately consolidate so much that they can raise prices. If they're, if they're using us as the excuse, we should be part of that conversation to say, yeah, sure, we like convenience. Yeah, I think like e-commerce maybe should still exist, but, you know, or, you know, Kindles, are, you know, the Kindle is a useful product, whatever, but um, maybe there's limits um, to what, a, when a company gets so big and like controls so much and it dictates terms so much to huge markets, maybe there should be reasonable common sense limits. And I think consumers should be part of that conversation. Yeah. Yeah. No, I've struggled myself with like, what is the correct way to approach something like as someone that thinks about right to repair a lot, like, you know, if I, I have an iPhone personally and I've like, you know, grappled with the idea of like, should I like, you know, move away from the Apple ecosystem, get like, you know, there are some European companies that have like more ethically sourced stuff, but at the same time, exactly what you're talking about, like a collectivist attitude toward it doesn't necessarily mean that me making this one-off decision is going to be interpreted by the company and just like change the narrative around repair to the point that it's going to actually make a difference. So I definitely agree with, you know, it, leveraging stuff like it, we talk a lot about like antitrust and, you know, just general government intervention, like right to repair laws are, are very, um, like are popping up everywhere. And so we're very much proponents of that rather than, you know, pushing for you should get rid of your iPhone because frankly, like as Aaron Perzanowski said on our first episode, like that's just not an option people are going to take. That's not an option that's going to like mobilize people and for better or for worse, um, you know, using the state as a vehicle for that, or at least like, you know, reform in the state is probably going to be our best option when it comes to that. Yeah. Also, I think about um, Amazon workers like that's something that um, I think is important if, if maybe there's ways for Amazon customers to develop more so solidarity with Amazon workers. Amazon is the second largest private employer in the United States after Walmart. Um, and, you know, any decision that um, Walmart. Amazon makes or is feels compelled to make, you know, by public pressure is going to have a huge impact on hundreds of thousands or maybe, you know, more than a million people. Um, so, and, you know, a lot of Amazon workers, you know, are not um, asking customers to cancel their Prime accounts. You know, that's not necessarily, you know, you, you know, even if they don't think they're good jobs, they're, they might be jobs that they would like to have and maybe they'd like to see them reform to be better jobs. So there's... Um, there's different ways to come at this, you know, and think about, you know, if people are feeling, com you know, compelled to act. I mean, I think, you know, the, the first step, too, is like really informing yourself and, and thinking about, you know, um, you know, what is the scope of Amazon's power? And what are some of the ways that, um, you know, as much as like I might be happy if a thing comes in two days, what are what are, again, some of the costs of those convenience? Yeah, definitely just an interesting perspective that I don't think people necessarily hear all the time. I feel like we definitely jump to like, oh, well, okay, like, I guess I'll just, I'll, I'll fix the problem by getting rid of my iPhone or, or canceling my Prime membership. So um, appreciate your perspective on that. I wanted to touch back on something you had mentioned and something you talk about in the book is the growth of IoT. That's something that we talk a lot about um, just on the Substack and on the podcast. So you know, IoT, the Internet of Things, the fact that we're putting computers into everything and they are surveilling us and companies are packaging and selling our data and also using it to make us buy more or not make us, but, you know, make it convenient for us to buy more things. Can you talk just about you use the term and you've written about this surveillance as a service like Amazon basically like says the quiet part out loud and they're like, yeah, no, like we we will surveil you. But, you know, 
it's going to make your life easier. And so you, you mentioned that and they basically like practically give away like these smart speakers because they know that like you're going to buy more if you have one and they can collect more data on you. And the craziest thing that I read was the, the Amazon key, the, basically the fact that like they can connect to your like garage door and open it so that you don't have to worry about someone coming and taking your packages. Um, just like just generally the fact that we give so much trust to a company like that um, while at the same time, like knowing the underlying intention of all of that. Can you just talk a little bit about like surveillance as a service and what that means for people that are like just thinking about buying something, but not really fully appreciating the whole picture? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, I, I, I I wrote about, I actually, even before I wrote the book, and then it's also in the book too, this idea of um, surveillance as a service. And I think it's responding to the idea that, you know, often like critics or scholars, you know, you know, come from a starting position of like surveillance is bad and like people won't want it. Um, but when I looked at how Amazon communicated to um, users about, um, about, the way it collects data about them, and especially in, with the rollout of like Echo smart speakers and the Alexa digital voice assistant, I, you know, really noticed like, you know, they're not so much hiding everything about the fact that they're watching us. Like they're actually offering this as a service and actually it's not new. Like they've been doing that for a long time. Like they were, on, you know, early adopters of, um, you know, recommendation systems that are, you know, based on collecting data about you and very explicitly personalizing their their e-commerce site, for example. So if there's something kind of explicit about like, you know, you know, hey, Emily, you know, like, you know, we've been watching like what you look at and like, you know, um, you know, what pages you spend a lot of time on and um, what you've bought and maybe what you've been searching for other places. And now we have a whole bunch of suggestions for you. Um, so, you know, and then Alexa takes this to um, another level. And, you know, the, you know, it's interesting to look at the instructions for the, what are called Alexa skills. So these are just things you can do on your Alexa and they may or may not be coming from Amazon. They may be from third parties. And so you can see that, you know, you can read about these Alexa skills and they explicitly says like, you know, use the person's name, you know, um, acknowledge like, you know, you, you should be explicit about, well, last time maybe you did this. Do you want to do that again? You know, um, so, you know, and, you know, people will, you know, talk about, oh, I went to someone's house and, you know, I was talking and Alexa, like, realized I was a new voice and, you know, asked if I, if, if, if I could, you know, find out what my name was, you know, so, um, um, yeah, and, and Alexa, like, in latest communications, it's not just about, like, responding to things that you ask Alexa to do, but they're trying to think about how Alexa can anticipate your needs, um, so, you know, I conceptualize Amazon as, you know, sort of this ultimate service brand. Like it's, it, it you know, it's not no longer just associated with books or even electronics. Um, it's just associated with service, you know, and it's kind of promoted this idea through Alexa, through the Amazon key service, where you can connect all these different smart home devices and connect them to Amazon, including perhaps even your, your car you know, a trunk opener, um, you know, which might even be through like a third party company um, so that you can have, you know, oh, shoot, I need something. I'm going to do same day delivery. It's going to be delivered to my car or, you know, or I'm going to let, you know, Amazon approved cleaners into my house to clean while I'm out. So, um, you know, they're, they're using, you know, all these you know, in increasing amount of Internet of Things, smart home products, which either they're developing or they're acquiring market leaders in to say, yeah, we're going to be, you know, we're going to be your eyes. We're going to help you also have eyes in all these spaces. And this is just part of like deepening the service that we've already been providing for you to you. You know, you got used to depending on us for like delivering stuff quickly. And now you can depend on us for keeping an eye on your home and maybe even doing things inside your home when you're not there. And maybe even noticing if you, you know, sound like you don't feel well when you're talking to Alexa. Or to your, you know, on your Halo smartwatch, and then we'll make some health-related suggestions. You know, I mean, that is, you know, and as Amazon moves into sort of more um, health and wellness products and industries, that really, I mean, 
you know, if it didn't already make you give you pause, I think, you know, you know, the tone of voice thing and the connection to things like, oh, but we're also we're going to be selling pharmaceuticals. Oh, maybe we're going to get into health insurance. You know, I think that certainly should. Yeah. The idea of like Amazon selling me like anti-anxiety and depression medication scares me. Like that's very dystopian. Especially, yeah, if they've, they've collected, you know, um, all kinds of, you know, now, I mean, how good it is is an open question, but AI right now has this promise of like, you know, being able to, you know, read faces to pick up on um, emotion and tone of voice. Um, and, you know, Amazon has really been on the forefront of like, you know, interaction by voice. I mean, they, they dominate the smart speaker market. Obviously, Alexa, not so much in like mobile voice, but in like home-based voice assistants. Alexa, you know, and again, as you say, they, they gave, they've been giving away either breaking even, sometimes even taking losses on smart speakers. They just want to win that market. They want to be the default, you know, voice platform. And at this point, I think, you know, certainly they have competitors with, you know, Google and, and Apple, but they are definitely in the lead. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Yeah. Um, yeah. I feel like this whole conversation is just kind of centered on the parallel between, I think, just what your work is about and right to repairs idea about just how difficult it is to, you know, win this fight over meaning, right? Like right to repair is really worried about, you know, the control over the things that you buy and just generally how corporations are able to persuade us and kind of box us into certain choices. And I think exactly what you're covering is just that and like kind of the machinations of how a company is able to just like get so powerful in a particular market and kind of like weaponize that to just create profits at the expense of consumers. Yeah, and I, I think it's sort of an open question how important choice is to consumers if it means more work and effort, you know, because, you know, um, you like, you know, I think about how people de default to Amazon so often for online shopping when it's sort of, you think about, well, it's pretty easy to like open another app or web, you know, tab on your browser to look somewhere else. And yet people aren't. Um, and, you know, certainly repair becomes more complex with electronics, of course, that have gotten so much smaller, etc. cetera. Um, so, you know, I, 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 but I think one thing that people really don't like is like, overpaying, like being overcharged. Um, and so I think that sometimes that can also be a, um, you know, a, a persuasive argument. Um, but what, what, one thing I know that, you know, you're aware of that um, I, I'm sure Amazon, you know, in its lobbying and communication really, communications really leans on is this information security piece. And Amazon, especially because it is collecting so much domestic personal information about us, I'm sure is going to heavily lean on this idea of like, oh, no, we don't want, you know, you know, you know, if all your, your Amazon accounts and like devices are linked, well, we never want, you know, any of those to go to a, a non-approved um, repair company because, you know, so then again, it, you can see it becomes this self-fulfilling prophecy. It's not connected things. It's like all part of, you know, um, one company. Yeah. And I guess I will kind of finish off with this question, which I realize is probably a big one, but like what, where do you see the future of Amazon being and where would you actually like it to be going? I try not to predict the future. <laughs> um, I mean, to me, all signs seem to be pointing towards just expanding into, you know, even more horizontally and more vertically, you know. Um, so like, you know, for a long time, it just had like its warehouses and then third parties did last mile delivery. Well, now Amazon is at this point, I think, the leading last mile delivery um, package company, you know, like not all that happened very quickly. Um, you know, like what other kind of complementary products and services will they, will you know, why would they not move into them if they have, are like one of the most market capitalized countries? countries in the world, uh, companies, I should say, in the world. Um, and, um, you know, what, what are all the different ways that they're going to ask, you know, they're going to try and capitalize on this trust that they've built up with um, consumers. Like, I've been tracking um, how they've moved into, like, climate corporate responsibility just in the last couple years, um, you know, and kind of come up with this, like, you know, 
carbon accountability, like they've co-founded their own carbon accountability organization and they have, are having other companies sign up to up for it. And their, their new like branded arena in Seattle is climate pledge arena. I mean, this is, you know, so it's, I, I, I really have my eye on the ways in which Amazon is like, not just like a, a player in a marketplace, but like, you know, has its fingers in different kinds of governance. And I think that's something to really keep track of. Um, but I think there's really, you know, we have to acknowledge like how quickly, like Amazon was founded in like, you know, 1994 and went live in 1995. Like that is just not that long ago. Regulators are like, you know, it was only in like, say the last couple of years that, that, you know, people in Washington sounded like they knew what they were talking about, you know, when they were interviewing, you know, the heads of these companies, like that is sort of a recent development. So I think we should really be um, focusing on regulation, not just at the federal, but the state level as well. And re recognize that we are in a period, like a very sensitive, exciting period of, you know, characterized by regulatory lag. You know, like stuff happened fast. You know, people didn't necessarily realize that a pla digital platforms have their own advantages and logics that the old laws and forms of regulation didn't really make sense with. And so let's as citizens and as consumers be really active and help lawmakers at all levels of government catch up. Right. That's what I think needs to happen. That's, I think, a beautifully succinct way uh, to describe it, because I feel like we're definitely on the same page when it comes to right to repair. It's just that, like, especially as devices move into the digital space, which is something that we cover a lot, it's just like there there is so much lag and there people are still just like starting to get their arms around these ideas. And so being able to, like, you know, impact the narrative that just the way that we all understand, like how we consume things, how companies, you know, exert power over us is something that I think is kind of fairly new in terms of like general, like, I guess like general public understanding, um, or at least like kind of this animosity toward tech that's been building up for the past couple of years. Yeah, it's a very um, interesting moment, I think. Yeah, um, there's the, the 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 winds have been shifting a bit, and um, you know, I mean, it you know wasn't that long ago that I feel like, and there's still an element of this, like, oh, you know, the titans of tech, you know, like um, just you know the these heads of these companies were just glorified, and um, you know, everyone was just so happy that they were making money and you know innovating and making Americans feel good about themselves. I think too, as like you know, I think there's like a certain type of like tech patriotism in there too. So you know, we need to like acknowledge that and like face that and think about um, you know, and also be realistic. Like you know. Uh, as you say, like, it's going to be a tough sell to tell people to get rid of their iPhones, you know, and, and think about, um, you know, what are our values around, um, you know, business, like, you know, what are common sense, reasonable restrictions or lanes that we ask them to stay within um, that, you know, still allow innovation, um, but that, you know, keep an eye on these, this bigger picture, right? The ecological picture, the, the health, not just of the, like the, the huge tech companies, but of small businesses, you know, and that's a huge issue with Amazon too. Like it's simultaneously been amazing for small businesses who can now reach these huge markets on a big e-commerce platform and terrible for them because like Amazon's terms keep getting worse and worse and they extract more and more profits and they demand, you know, way more sort of pay for play types of things. And so then it's, it's like you have to be on it, but like it's so hard to like survive on it at the same time. Yeah. Well, um, Emily, is there anything that I didn't ask you that I should have or anything that you felt like was interesting that popped up that we didn't cover? No, I thought it, it was all really interesting. I mean, I, I would just maybe pitch one last idea from my book, which is that um, I mentioned Amazon is this ultimate service brand. And I'm really interested in thinking about how our engagements with Amazon even change how we what it means to be a consumer so you know like we like being a consumer was about being a choosing subject like you run around to different companies and you make lots of choices and you're always comparing and i think about how amazon encourages us to be a served self um and that i think is an impediment to a competitive you know digital marketplace and also if this subjectivity, this way of thinking of ourselves, of the self takes root, it's not great, you know, for this right to repair movement either. Like we, we need to maybe 
you know, reclaim, like, there, yeah, yes, there's limits to what, you know, consumer choice can do, but also we don't want to lose it. Yeah, I'm just very, like, dumbfounded at, like, how, and I even see it myself, it's just, like, how little thinking you do when you buy things, and, like, you don't, you don't see any of the, the impacts, really, and just how invisible it all is. Yeah, when it's a thing you do with your finger or quickly with your voice, as opposed to something that you had to, like, get on your bike or get in your car and go into a, a place to do. Yeah, yeah, taken to the extreme. Wow. Well, uh, Emily West, thank you so much for joining us. Um, your book is out now. You can feel free to plug that and anything else that you have going on. Yeah, um, so it's called Buy Now, How Amazon Branded Convenience and Normalized Monopoly, available from your all your favorite booksellers. Hopefully your local bookstore might even have it. You could ask them about it. Um, it's also open access online at the, so the ebook, you, you don't actually have to buy the ebook if you don't want to. You could go to MIT Press Direct to access it. And if you want to follow things that I'm doing lately, you can go to emilywestphd.com. Great. Well, thank you for coming on. We really appreciate having this conversation with you. Thank you so much. It's been super interesting. Thank you, everybody, for listening to that interview with Dr. Emily West. You can buy her book uh, anywhere you find your books. We recommend you use bookshop.org, which helps you route uh, book purchases through uh, local bookshops in your area. Another couple other things, uh, please. This is a publication that is part of a broader publication, which is Fight to Repair, which is on Substack. So feel free to subscribe for free. If you have a premium subscription, you get early access to video podcasts and you also get access to free written content. So if you want stuff early and often, you want to stay ahead of the game on everything new about Right to Repair, definitely make sure to get a premium subscription. Uh, rate us five stars. We would really appreciate that. It helps people find the show, uh, whether you're using, you know, Apple Music or you're using Amazon, wink, wink, or you're using Spotify, you know, feel free to just give us a rating on wherever you find it. Um, let us know also, you know, what you like about the interviews, what you want to hear more about. Give us an email. Give us a shout. It's whatthefixpodcast at gmail.com. We'd appreciate hearing from you. Or just, you know, comment on the posts on the Substack. Make sure that you're subscribed. Uh, it's a good way to stay up to date on everything uh, related to the fight for the right to repair. 